Welcome to Coffee and Conservation, hosted by Dr. Beth Baker, Assistant Extension Professor in the Department of Wildlife, Fisheries, and Aquaculture at Mississippi State University. From water and soil to habitat and food production, Dr. Baker and her guests discuss the necessity and complexity of conservation in the U.S. Hey everyone, welcome back to another edition of Coffee and Conservation. I'm Beth Baker, and in this episode and the few episodes after this, you're going to hear a really interesting and like exciting conversation between myself, my graduate student, Alexandra Firth, and uh, a farmer she used to work for um, on an organic farm in New Mexico. And so Nolina is going to share so much of her experience and wisdom about starting a small organic farm from basically nothing and and all the intricacies um, of doing that, the challenges that she faced, her experience as a female farmer, and how she was able to create um, really meaningful connections with her community and with nature. So stay tuned throughout the series. We recorded these via Zoom, so I hope you enjoy. So uh, we're here with Nolina from Nolina's Heavenly Organics, which is a small organic farm in New Mexico. I used to volunteer and work there um, a few years ago before I moved to Mississippi. And uh, today Nolina is here just to talk a little bit about her process on a small farm, um, some of the challenges that she's had to face and really just her philosophy and perspective and we're really excited to hear from her yeah we are thanks for joining nolina it's so good to to have this conversation really so thank you my pleasure to get us started will you give us a little background about the farm in terms sure. of you know <laughs> the size of the farm, where it's located on the landscape, uh, the environment, things like that. Sure. The um, the I bought the land bare uh, a quite a, a couple of decades ago uh, with the vision of starting a little organic farm, and um, I would highly encourage any prospective farmers to not start with bare land because farming is such hard work. You don't want to have to build buildings and lay irrigation and do all of that too. So, um, but that's, that's how we did it. We built little houses all over and uh, laid irrigation and cleared uh, one acre for a field to start. I thought that that would be doable, but it turns out an acre is quite a bit for a small petite artisan farm when you're um, growing produce. So, and what we grew was um, anything that you might go to your local co-op or local farmers cooperative to buy from garlic and onions to chard and tomatoes. Um, so, uh, and to do that, the most important thing that I found since we started with dirt and the farm is situated in the Rio Grande Valley of New Mexico. New Mexico has its own uh, environmental challenges for a farmer because of the climate. But um, to turn uh, dirt into soil takes an incredible amount of um, a compost, bone meal, blood meal, and uh, but soil really is the most important thing for growing, I think. 
That's so, um, that's so interesting um, in terms of, as you mentioned, starting really from the ground up with complete bare soil um, and having to go from there, especially when you're focusing on several different types of, of crops that, as you mentioned, would be best for like a farmer's market. Um, I'm always curious because I'm less familiar with farming, how you source seeds and how you decide um, where, to, where to get seed for more specialty crops. Um, sure. There's a, a, a great um, <clears throat> resource called Seed Savers Exchange. Uh, they have been around for a long time there in the Midwest and they collect uh, all kinds of heirloom seeds from people that actually send them into their seed bank. And then they also sell some commercial seeds. So they always have really unusual varieties. Um, I would encourage any farmer that's growing uh, for food to uh, try some unusual varieties, but keep all the standard things that people want. Like they want tomatoes. They want, if they want okra, they might not want red okra. They just want green okra. So have both available and have some fun with it. Um, another good place that I found to order was Johnny's Selected Seeds. And they're back in Maine. They've been there a long time. They have a lot of organic seeds and they have a good range of um, seeds available, uh, baby plants available, and also they have a lot of um, documentation on their web about how many seeds to plant per acre, and then of course you um, calculate that for the size you want. They have uh, how to grow things, um, what certain plants need, so their, uh, their library there, their electronic library is really good. They also have, you know, tools and everything else. So I quite liked them. Of course, I learned a lot from trial and error and also from asking other farmers, where do you get your seeds? Johnny's gave great service. If you ordered, they would get it to you right away. So other places were a little um, not as prompt. Um, then there's other places where you order garlic, uh, which... Um, uh, the farm used to got up to 88 different varieties of garlic. So we really loved our little garlic collection family. And um, so it just depends on what you're ordering. For onion starts, uh, I used, I think it was called Dixondale Farms, and they would send the baby plants in. And in, in uh, New Mexico, the weather is so, it gets mild early in the year. So we would in January and February plant those. Uh, they're cold tolerant and they grow the greens in the cold and then they bulb up when it gets warm. So uh, there's lots of resources out there. One good way to discover where to buy seeds you need or want or would like to grow is just peruse the catalogs, uh, online catalogs, and also ask other farmers. Noelina, can you tell us a little bit about how you learned how to grow all the different uh, crops or your process of starting something new or trying something new that maybe you hadn't grown before? Sure. Um, well, you know me, I'm a great reader. So I read a lot of books. <laughs> Rodale Publications uh, publishes all these books about organic uh, growing and organic pest control, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and I also, you can read the seed catalogs. They tell the, um, days to maturity for a certain kind of seed. So if you want to grow carrots, you would grow some 
ones that mature earlier, that mature later, and that are cold tolerant or heat tolerant. So, um, and I also kept a farm journal where I notated in great detail what did well, what didn't do well, and the inputs we put on that uh, row. Our rows were four feet wide by 140 feet long. Um, so um, that's, that's, that was my approach. And I also asked other farmers at the farmer's market. Um, farmers are very good about sharing information and sharing seeds and sharing how to do things or what worked for them or what didn't, and even sharing their tractor if you need it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I can't even imagine the amount of information you had to absorb to, you know, fully move from not farming to having a really diverse farm. And as you mentioned, even 88 varieties of garlic, which I'm sure if any of our listeners are like me, you didn't even know there was 88 varieties <laughs> of garlic. <laughs> um, I'm really interested in the trial and error part um, as you learned more about different crops, tried different crops, um, and as you mentioned, keeping the farm journal, and I know Lexi keeps a really expansive or extensive even research journal now. <laughs> I was actually having thoughts this morning, like, aren't all of our major epiphanies actually coming out of our reflections through journaling? I don't know. I feel like my professional ones do, <laughs> but can you tell me more about how instrumental that record keeping was for you and just really remembering all the things that happened on the farm and re reflecting on them to make assessments about how the growing season went and then how you made the next decision? Sure. Um, first of all, if you're going to become a farmer, you're already a, a farmer, you have to have a vision uh, of how you want to farm. So I chose to grow organic. Uh, not only because when we don't want to be eating pesticides and fertilizers, or I don't, you know, uh, of course, everything uh, changes all the time to what's available. Like these days, you can't shop all the places you used to. So um, we, we, we modify our ideals as we go along. But I chose to be all organic. Um, I preferred to do no-till because I really value the, uh, the top foot of soil uh, and the microbial life. Uh, the web of life that lives there. And also because New Mexico's desert, uh, I used drip irrigation, which also keeps the weeds down. Weeds love to grow a lot faster than, um, than your uh, spinach. For nutrition for the plants, uh, at my farm we used bone meal and blood meal. Bone meal is for good, um, like, growth of the tomato or the blossom or and um, blood meal is the, what provides the nitrogen for uh, the plant growing. And then some things we also uh, foliar fed with Alaska fish fertilizer, which is also just nitrogen. Here we don't need the, let's see, NPK. We don't need the, P, the K portion because uh, the soil near the river where I am has enough of that already. So you need to really... Um, uh, I sent in soil samples at, from when I began to see what it needed, and then after a couple of years of farming, uh, here we have New Mexico State University, so I sent it to their lab to get the report back to actually see what was in the soil so I could evaluate um, the health of the soil, and also I made observations in my journal about how the plants responded. Sometimes things grew better than others, 
And um, so the, 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 the documentation is really important to go back and look at when you planted it, what you added into the soil, like the rate of the blood meal, the bone meal, how often you foliar fed, et cetera, et cetera, and also how often you water. I think we probably have to water a lot more here in New Mexico than you might in Mississippi. <laughs> and also the temperatures, the high, the high and low temperatures swing a lot in New Mexico. So, um, and so I tended to water uh, more often probably than you would there because we don't get a lot of rain. So uh, the environment is a huge part of how things grow. So documenting the temperatures and when it rained and uh, the conditions um, is, is important to note. And, and it's a great resource to go back to your farm notebook and see uh, when you planted it, what you fed it, what the temperatures have been, what did well, what didn't, and what might have caused it. So um, that's invaluable. I do want to add something to that, Nolina, that you didn't mention is that you had your farm notebooks, but you also kept just a normal everyday calendar and every day noted the highs and low temperatures and when it rained, how big the rain was, um, if we had any big winds, because the winds in the spring get really intense in New Mexico. Um, <laughs> there was, we had this one day where there was like this 90 mile our uh, mild wind that came in and whipped the cover off of our giant greenhouse. It was very scary. <laughs> um, yeah, so you were, you took not just like notes on what you were planting, but also the weather and environmental conditions pretty much every day, if I remember correctly. Yes, that's, um, you know, that's number one, that's my propensity. And number two, in New Mexico, you kind of need it because every, the variables, the environmental variables change so often and are so extreme. So one, um, my absolute favorite approach to um, toning down the environment so plants grow better is a seasonal high tunnel. It's like a giant hoop house and um, you can close it up in the winter and then open it up in the spring. The sides roll up and the ends roll up um, so that it modifies the climate changes, the extreme highs and lows that we had. And that uh, allows you to grow longer, to have a full season of growing by using um, floating row cover and such in the winter, um, hooped with wickets over the rows. And uh, Lexi and Katie used to come in the winter and we'd, we had in December and January, we just had huge greens in there, right? <laughs> yeah, it was like this own, I mean, there were insects alive buzzing. I was in there in a shorts and a tank top and it was snowing outside. So the temperature difference <laughs> was pretty extreme. It also helps if you're a farmer because marketing is a huge part uh, to have produce in the off season, not just in the summer for farmers markets, but uh, we also sold to La Montanita Co-op and to the, uh, to the chefs at the restaurants who love to buy your produce. They're very supportive. And um, so the seasonal high tunnel helped extend the growing season and provide, uh, for instance, chard and greens in the winter. Okay, yeah, that was that was my question. If you if you utilized it mostly during the winter season, and if there were certain crops that did well in the seasonal high tunnel, that as opposed to others that maybe just still continue to do well in in the natural environment. Um, so we. Uh, of course, this was a lot of trial and error, but we um, we jigged it, right? Like sometimes we wanted to start um, 
for instance, summer squash, that's zucchini, uh, starburst, those squashes. Uh, we'd start the baby plants in the little, a little seedling greenhouse that we had in January, and then in February, plant them in the seasonal high tunnel um, so that they could produce uh, by end of March, April, and then we would um, pull all the plants up so that we missed the squash bugs, which uh, we did not like those squash bugs. <laughs> and, and they come, but they usually, they have a season, the bugs have a season too, so they would come to the outdoor squash plants, um, you know, end of May, June uh, is when they would really replicate and, and become a problem. So um, rather than have to pick squash bugs bugs off or spray with soap or whatever uh, we 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 devised that to grow that crop in the seasonal high tunnel which also gave us a little edge by having the first uh, zucchini and summer squash around you know for the um for the markets in the in the co-op etc so other things we we grew by season in the seasonal high tunnel so it just depends on what it was um, some things do really well outside, like tomatoes and okra, of course, you don't need to grow inside. And um, so, and we would, ro you have to ro rotate a lot and plant a lot. So uh, say you have a 60 day carrot, you, you plant one area and then harvest that. And then the next area is already planted to overlap and be ready in another month. So uh, it's just something also that where the farm journal comes in handy, you have to keep the the records of and and be prepared to plant when needed. Yeah, I so appreciate um, and respect your attention to detail, not only of the environment, but of the the cropping system that you evolved to. And I'm curious, you know, because that attention to detail um, also ends up in, in how wisely you use resources on the farm, whether they're natural resources or inputs to the farm and speaks so much to um, the conservation value of your approach. How much time would you say you spent, and I'm, I'm guessing a lot, um, just visioning and imagining like the next year of the farm or the next phase or the next season? Oh, that that's a continual process, right? When you're out harvesting, you're going, oh, I love uh, these flowers. We also sold flowers just for us for fun because bouquets at the farmer's market weren't a big seller. Um, but um, so w we left um, uh, wild places around the fields for the pollinators, you know, the birds and the bees. And then we also grew flowers also for the pollinators, but for us so we could have some beauty around us. And so constantly when you're planting and you see how good something does or it doesn't, didn't take, or then you're harvesting and you go, this was really good. You're always thinking of the next year. So in the winter, you get a bit of a, um, uh, a rest when you can look through the catalogs and really dream about what you'd like to try next year. And also you remember what the people at the farmer's markets said, oh, I wish you had this, or I'm glad you have that. So um, uh, visioning is a constant process and a constant learning process and um, farming is hard work so you get pretty tired but that that's a kind of the shiny part of farming is always imagining what you will plant next year. I guess I guess I had one follow-up question to that too because really as I consider your approach which is just so fun to listen to it's very scientific and um, your knowledge 
of the different components of the system are, is also very scientific. And so just for context for listeners, do you have formal training in soil science or agronomy? <laughs> I, I don't. And um, you may think it's scientific, but um, uh, I always think of farming as a whole combination of things. Number one, as a farmer, you get to do a little bit of everything. You get to um, hoe the soil, weed, plant, harvest, uh, plan, do bookkeeping. Uh, so it's really a, a, a diverse profession. Uh, and number two, um, I just learned all those things as I went along. And um, number three, I, I did use a bit of intuition. Like uh, I would talk to the plants and, and I'd go, hi, tomatoes. You look like you're really having a good time out here. So, <laughs> so um, yeah, I mean, that's not really a scientific approach to listen to the plants but really scientists i think by keeping all their data and everything are doing the same thing um aren't they yeah and in fact you you may think that's not scientific but i did just read a social science paper that came out last month and it it dove into and i don't want to misrepresent it but it did dive into some of the aspects of farming that rely on intuition rather than more explicit knowledge and so um there's a paper on that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, that's like a lot of things in life, right? Like, um, it's become trendy lately for for people to know that dogs, uh, petting dogs, can be beneficial to health and everything, right? So, but we may have always known that, but finally, scientists have collected enough data that they can um, they can support that theory or that that uh, you know that type of thing. <laughs> so. Yeah, but but in our lives, you know, it's always a blend of things. It's a blend of intuition, a blend of memory, what we remembered, or a blend of learning, or what we researched. So that's how farming is too. And I just want to add to that that when you're out there working on these fields, like there's so much a part of you. You're looking at how the land changes. You're out there every single day. Um, of course, you're going to be somewhat scientific about it because you've just observed so much and you see so many interactions that are happening. Um, it's, and what is science other than just to try something and make observation and then shift your perspective off of those results. So, I mean, it's kind of hard not to look at land like that when you're so connected with it every single day, day in and day out. Yep. So maybe uh, science is a paradigm of farming is a paradigm of life. <laughs> it's a lifestyle and it's about relationships, um, you know, with all the people that it takes a lot of hands to farm. And it's about, you know, sharing relationships and the lifestyle and your ideal and doing something worthwhile. So um, farming is a very good profession and uh, it's a very good life. Yeah, thank you. That all of those perspectives are so important, um, especially since it's just a very small percentage of the population that are farmers. Um, and so I think hearing from you and your experience is just um, very valuable for any of our listeners who do not come from a farming, farming background. All right, stay tuned for our next episode with Nolina as we start digging into some of the challenges she experienced on the farm.
As always, you can find more information on our website or in the show notes after the show. And we always want to acknowledge and thank our primary sponsor, the Mississippi Natural Resources Conservation Service, for their support of this podcast. Thanks for joining us for Coffee and Conservation. To find out more about the topics discussed, visit the REACH website at reach.msstate.edu or the Mississippi State University Extension Service website at extension.msstate.edu. Thank you.